Good morning. Surprised to see me up here, I'm sure. I'm surprised to see me up here as well. Um, but because of what Jake was talking about and the, that a precaution, um, even though Monty is feeling great, he just decided he needs to stay away, which is a good for all of us. So um, since everybody else is gone, uh, Tim's in Chicago and Stephen is out, so uh, it falls on me then to do the, the sermon this morning. And I didn't have a whole lot of time to prepare, so what I'm going to be doing is reading a sermon. Uh, it's actually a John MacArthur sermon, and uh, so it'll be better than what I could have prepared for you guys, so I hope that uh, this will be a, uh, an encouraging time for us this morning. Um, this, uh, this message is entitled The Paradox of Christmas, so it's kind of, we're going to be looking at some of the um, contradictory things about the Christmas story and about Christ our Savior and looking at some of the prophecies that were foretold of him in the Old Testament and how without all the pieces, they didn't make a lot of sense. And yet when we have the New Testament and we see how it's all fulfilled, we can look back and see the providence of God and how he has brought about the beautiful gift of his son for us. So um, we're going to be looking at uh, a lot of scripture this morning. So have your Bible or your phone, however you're doing it, available, and we'll be jumping around. I'll try to give you time to, to find those spots. Um, but the, the word paradox, I want to talk about that first. That's a Greek word, and it's made, made up of two Greek words, uh, doxa, which essentially means a fact or a truth and para, which means alongside. So a paradox is something where it takes two different truths and places them alongside of each other. And they can appear contradictory at times and maybe even absurd. One old English definition would be that a paradox is something seemingly absurd and yet true. Um, So we're going to be looking at some of those. there are some serious paradoxes around Christmas that has a split personality. We, we see that in our culture today. There's Santa Claus, this mythically, supernaturally empowered, overweight elf who slides down chimneys and whose entire verbal contribution to the world is ho, ho, ho. Um, I'm not sure how he's managed to have such a la- long-lasting impact, however. But then that is set against none other than the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is supernatural, the God-man whose words are profound and deep and eternal and life-giving. And somehow this culture is caught somewhere between these two very different characters. Mass confusion seems to exist, furious rushing everywhere, traffic, madness, crowds, impossible schedules. And I've noticed this year, maybe that's been a little bit less because of the COVID, um, the pandemic that we've been fighting against, but there's that elusive peace that people are searching for, and while we celebrate it this time of year, it is hard to find. 2,000 years ago, there was one star that lit the sky over the spot where the Lord was born, and now so many houses have lights, so many lights, they shine in so many places, we're almost drowning in lights. I, I noticed it seemed that people were putting up their lights earlier this year, I think maybe to kind of get them out of the funk of of what we've been going through. But it seems that there have just been a lot more lights this year than in years past. Um, 
Many stores are lit up, buildings, we even have the Space Needle lit up. It seems to be the season of light. The first Christmas was a poor one, a manger, a stable, and a baby. Christmas today is a display of wealth, as millions of people spend billions of dollars to indulge in temporary things. The first Christmas, wise men came to worship, and today, fools worldwide ignore the one the wise men worship. Santa Claus gives you what you want because you deserve it. Jesus Christ gives you what you need, even though you don't deserve it. Very different. These are some sample paradoxes, not the important ones that we're going to talk about this morning. But I want to show you the paradoxical, the apparently contradictory nature of Christianity that demonstrates to us its supernatural character and revelation. And to be able to see this, we need to go to the other side of Christmas, the before Christmas side, back in the Old Testament and look at some of the prophecies concerning our Messiah. Now we know that the prophecies concerning the Messiah were very difficult to understand, much more difficult for the prophets who prophesied them than even for us. They were inspired by the Spirit of God to write what the Lord had told them to write, but even at that, they could not understand what they were writing. And we hear Peter say this in 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come, that would come to you, made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The prophecies were about two things, the sufferings of Christ and the glories of the Messiah. And those two set against each other throughout the prophecies of the Old Testament made it difficult for even the prophets who wrote the prophecies down to understand. So that they made careful searches and inquiries into what person and what time they themselves were even writing about. The Old Testament presents the coming Messiah as a conqueror. And yet in other passages, it presents him as a defeated enemy. In some Old Testament prophecies, he's seen as bringing joy to the world. In other Old Testament areas, he is seen as a man of sorrows. Sometimes he's seen as a conqueror, sometimes as the one who's rejected. Sometimes he's seen in great strength and triumph, other times in abject weakness. He's the one who will bring life, and yet in other prophecies, he's the one who will die. Some speak of him as a king of glory, king of heaven and earth, eternal king, desire of all nations. And yet other prophets say there will be nothing about him that men should desire him. These kinds of puzzling, paradoxical statements need an explanation because they appear on the surface to present someone who's caught in some level of, of absurdity because of these kind of contradictions. He's to be the lion of the tribe of Judah, and yet he is a lamb led to slaughter. He is to be the judge of the world, to come and judge sinners, burning them with unquenchable fire, and yet he is to be, the un, to be unjustly judged by sinners and executed as a criminal. All of these conundrum-like truths are lying side by side in the Old Testament and cause the prophets to search to find out what time, what person could possibly fulfill all of these. So this query stretched even into the New Testament. If you would, open your Bible to Matthew 11. And let's go, yeah, let's go to chapter 11 of the book of Matthew. 
and uh, we're going to read starting at verse 1. Actually, I did my piece. <coughs> so this is uh, written of John, John the Baptist, who is the last Old Testament prophet, and, but he is the one who heralded Jesus himself. So let's read uh, Matthew 11, uh, verses 1 through 15. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are the, you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So John the Baptist was really miraculously conceived. Uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth were barren into their very old age, and the Lord allowed them to have a son who would be the last of the Old Testament prophets. After 400 years of silence, and he would be the prophet who announced the arrival, not, the anticip not anticipating the coming as the other prophets, but announcing the arrival of the Messiah, which is exactly what John the Baptist did. But as we find him here in chapter 11, things have not gone the way that he thought they should go. He's in prison. He's in a prison that's a part of a Herodian palace about five miles east of the Dead Sea and 15 miles south of the northern shore. This is a fortress called Macarius. It is a very desolate place. Apparently, he's allowed visitors, and folks have come and given him some information about what the Messiah, Jesus, is doing. And John is highly confused. To understand this confusion, turn to Luke chapter 3 and listen to his message. This is not a message that he developed on his own. It's a message that came to him from God himself. So in Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist here is, is preaching. And it says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate is the governor of Judea, Herod is the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. So these are the sons of Herod the Great. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, 
So John spoke the word of God prophetically about the Messiah. He's still an Old Testament prophet. The Messiah is here, but his real work has not yet culminated in his death and resurrection. So John is still prophesying about the Messiah as prophecies come to him from the Lord himself. And it says, He came into the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's preaching that because judgment is coming. And the Lord, the word of the Lord comes to him, and he is to speak the words of Isaiah the prophet. And here's what he has to say. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, that's him. Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled, and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough road smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. John here is preaching millennial glory, millennial kingdom. He's preaching the restored earth and paradise regained. He's preaching salvation. And along with that, he's preaching judgment. So he began in verse 7 saying to the crowds who were going about to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Then further down in that chapter, notice verse 16. John is speaking again. As for me, I baptize you with water, but one who is coming is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, the fire of judgment. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So this is John's message. It's a message of repentance, crying out for forgiveness, a message of salvation, a message of the establishment of the kingdom and of the judgment of all sinners. John has seen none of that. There is no great work of salvation being done in Israel. The nation has rejected Christ. There's no judgment on them as of yet. There's no fiery holocaust on their heads. And John doesn't understand what's going on. So back in Matthew 11, he sends his disciples to Jesus. And in verse 3, having heard of the works of Christ, and they're not works of judgment, they don't even appear to be works of salvation or the establishment of the kingdom. John sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Something isn't right, and John is confused. Notice the Lord's answer here, though, back in in Matthew 11. Jesus answered and said to them, The disciples of John who had come to represent them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. That's the opposite of judgment, isn't it? That's benevolence. That is mercy. That is kindness. That is blessing. That is healing like never in the history of the world. And our Lord, by the way, is quoting in those words from Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. So he's saying the prophets not only prophesied about judgment, fiery judgment, but they prophesied as well about mercy and kindness and the relief of suffering. So the Messiah is to do both. And in verse 6 comes our Lord's direct message to John. 
Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. What he's saying is, trust me, trust me. Don't draw any wrong conclusions. Don't be offended by what you think is the full picture. So you see, John is facing that same tension that the Old Testament prophets all faced. What is this going to be like when he comes? Who can do what he has been prophesied to do? How can these contradictory, mysterious components come together in one person at one time? It is a marvelous reality in Scripture that the diverse and the seemingly contradictory prophecies regarding Messiah make it impossible for any other person than the true Messiah to fulfill them. They are too contradictory, too paradoxical, too complex, and too prolific. All of these Old Testament prophecies are locked treasures to which the key is the New Testament, which we have. What was difficult for the prophets to understand, what was well-nigh impossible for John the Baptist to understand, you and I can understand them perfectly because we have the New Testament. We have the full record. And the New Testament ends with a book of Revelation that stretches to the ultimate fulfillment of all the prophecies, of all the glories to follow his suffering. Mystery, paradox, enigma make it impossible to counterfeit. They had a hard time getting it but we get it. We see it. Listen to this in Matthew 13. Our Lord said to his disciples, verse 17, Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, to hear what you hear and did not hear it. That was what it was like even to be a righteous person and to be a prophet in the Old Testament. You didn't have a clear picture. You didn't have a clear sound. But back in verse 16 of Matthew 13, the Lord said, Blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. These paradoxical things to them are crystal clear to us. Our eyes, too, have been blessed, and our ears have been blessed to hear and understand who our Lord Jesus Christ is. So let's look at a few of these paradoxes. Uh, If you would, turn to Isaiah chapter 7. In Isaiah chapter 7, we have a prophecy that is well known. We uh, sing about it. Uh, We've probably heard it a lot in the last few weeks if you're listening to Christmas carols. But the story of Christmas, the reality of Christmas, is the birth of the Son of God and the Son of Man, both man and God in one person. And we see that. We understand it on this side because we have the New Testament, which is the full revelation of the nature of Christ. But listen to the words of Isaiah 7. Um, I'm going to read there beginning in verse 10. So I'm going to read 10 through 16. Isaiah 7, 10 through 16, yeah. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, who was the king, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol as, or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men and that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. 
He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose kings you dread will be forsaken. So the the Lord himself will give you a sign. These are the words to King Ahaz. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. A virgin will bear a son. That's never happened. That's impossible. But that was necessary because there had to be a human in the equation of the birth of Christ, but not two humans, a human and God. So the Holy Spirit conceives in Mary the child who is both son of Mary and son of God. How are they to understand the Old Testament prophets, a virgin being with child? Well, they understand a child. That's a normal process. You give birth to a child, and yet this is not just a child. This is a son. And this is a son whose name is Emmanuel. The Lord himself, by his own will, by his own power, will produce a supernatural sign identifying a king far greater than Ahaz. The sign is this, a virgin shall conceive. The word virgin in Hebrew is Alma. All Old Testament uses, uses refer to a virgin, just like we use the word. The word behold is here because it's a shocking statement in and of itself. There will be a child, but also a son. A child, speaking perhaps of his humanity, and a son speaking of his deity. And he will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we know in Matthew chapter 1, this prophecy is quoted in verse 23 as fulfilled in Jesus. He is truly God and truly man. Let me say it again, truly God and truly man. This is the ultimate absurdity. This is the ultimate conundrum the paradox that someone would be 100% one thing and 100% another, and yet indivisible. So let's turn over to chapter 9 of Isaiah. Starting in verse 6, A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So here Isaiah injects another one of these prophecies for a child will be born. Again, speaking of the child, he makes reference to natural birth. Everyone is born of, as a child, of course. But also that that son, that child will be a son given, not just a child born, but a son given. Given by whom? Given by God. So again, you have man and God. You have fully man, fully God in one being. Born and yet given. Born to a woman and yet given from heaven. As if he already existed, because he did. And the government will rest on his shoulders. Shoulders are the symbol of carrying the weight. And several times in the book of Isaiah, particularly chapter 22, verse 22, you see the use of shoulders to refer to ruling. 
You carried the weight of rule on your shoulders. You carried the weight of responsibility on your shoulders. This child will have the government on his shoulders. Some of you think you have a lot of responsibility with a family. There are others who have responsibility with a business or responsibility with a class of students or responsibility for patients in a hospital or whatever it might be, responsibility for soldiers in battle or responsibility to lead cities or nations. This, this ruler, this child, this fully God, fully man will have on his shoulders the responsibility to rule a kingdom that has no limits and no end. Go down to verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government. No end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. It's a kingdom that encompasses all the universe and all eternity. This is a massive responsibility on the shoulders of this child, this son. And that statement, to the increase of his government there is no end, means he rules over all. His rule will fulfill the promise to David. He will sit on the throne of David and over his kingdom to fulfill the Davidic covenant. He will establish his kingdom with justice and righteousness, which means there's going to be some punishment. That's laid out in Psalm 89 magnificently. He will come and he will establish his kingdom with justice and with righteousness. Psalm 2 says he will rule with a rod of iron. Instant justice, instant righteousness, instant punishment. But it will be a kingdom of peace. It'll be a government of peace. Peace will be established by justice and righteousness and it will last forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. God's plans cannot be altered. So here's a prophecy about a child to be born who is also a son given, a child in the earthly sense, a son in the heavenly sense, who will have a kingdom with no limits in terms of space and no limits in terms of time. And to further identify his rule, he is given a name. And that name is a composite of several things. So looking at verse 6 in Isaiah 9, it says, His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. That doesn't mean he's really helpful when you have a problem. He is that, but that's not the point. As compared to Solomon, who was the wisest man who ever lived, this man is a wonder of a counselor. This is talking about the infinite nature of his wisdom, a wisdom beyond all rulers, including Solomon. He rules well. He rules over everything well. He rules throughout all eternity because he has wisdom that encompasses all that is required for that. He has the wisdom to rule everything forever flawlessly, and he knows what to do in every situation. Not only does he know what to do in every situation, he has the power to do it. The second part of his name is Mighty God, Mighty God. His wisdom is equal to his power, and his power is equal to his wisdom. Always the mighty God in the book of Isaiah refers to deity in the absolute sense. He has the wisdom and the power to rule the universe forever. But he's also an eternal father, it says. What's that supposed to mean? He's supposed to communicate to us that he cares for his children as a father does. He's a father to us. He eternally loves his children. 
He eternally provides for his children. He eternally leads his children to prosperity and blessing. So he's wise. He's all-powerful. He's compassionate and loving. And he is the prince of peace. This is the characteristic that causes a kingdom of peace. He is the prince of peace. All in his presence will be at peace because we will all have been made peace with God and possess infinitely perfect peace of God. No king could be said to have always been at peace. No king would be a benevolent, loving, kind, providing, caring father to every single person in the kingdom. This is a king like no other king. What an amazing set of prophecies. A virgin will give birth to a son who made the virgin. A child will be born who is God eternal. He will come into time and space, but he's always existed. He establishes his kingdom by righteousness and justice, and yet it is a kingdom of peace. Who could possibly fulfill all of these prophecies? What person could ever fulfill these prophecies? Listen to the angel in Luke 1. He says to Mary, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, and he will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, this holy child shall be called the Son of God. Yes, everything that was prophesied in Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 is fulfilled in the Son of God. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the child who is the eternal God. In Genesis 3, he's said to be the seed of a woman. In Daniel 7, he's the son of man. In Psalm 2, he's the son of God. In Genesis 22, he's the son of Abraham, though he existed before Abraham. In 2 Samuel 7, he's the son of David, though in Isaiah 11, it says that he is the root of Jesse, David's father. In Matthew 22, he is both David's son and David's Lord. Only Jesus fulfills all of these prophecies, a father and a son, born of a virgin, that he created, the son of Abraham who predates Abraham, the son of David who predates David, the God-man. No wonder he said in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It all becomes clear to us in Christ, doesn't it? So we have the paradox of the incarnation, fully God and fully man. Let's look at another mystery. This is the mystery of the lion of the tribe of Judah. So if we go back to Genesis 49, here's a prophecy that is so important. We all know about the 12 tribes. We know that the Lord had to pick one of those tribes through whom to bring the Messiah, and he chose the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49.10 says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. That is, it'll be someone produced out of that family of Judah that will hold the ruler's staff all the way through till Shiloh comes. 
Shiloh is a term that simply means the Messiah. It literally means the one whose right it is. It is kind of a cryptogram for the Messiah. So the Messiah is going to come from the line of Judah, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He will rule. He will be from the tribe of Judah. Revelation 5 calls him the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He had to be born of the line of Judah. If you look at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, it traces the line through Judah down to David, down all the way when you come to Joseph. But there's a problem. Let's go to Genesis chapter 38 and see what that problem is. Judah had lost his wife, and she was dead. He had a son named Ur, whom God had killed. So Judah is now a widower, and his son Ur had married a girl named Tamar. Tamar is now a widow. Tamar wants a child, so in Genesis 38, she dresses herself up like a prostitute. She goes into the places that prostitutes went, and she waits to seduce her father-in-law, Judah. She seduces him successfully, and she becomes pregnant. And the story picks up in verse 24 of Genesis 38. Now, it was about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. That's a pretty radical response. According to Deuteronomy 22, someone who commits the act of immorality was to be stoned. But later in Leviticus, God prescribed burning for the one who added incense to immorality. Burn her, he said. It was while she was being brought out to be burned, that is, that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and whose cords and staff these are. That was the price she, is, she had exacted from him. She wanted to be paid, and that's what he gave her. She kept it, and now she sends it back to him. Judah recognizes and said, She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son, Shelah. I should have given her to my son, Shelah. That was the liveret marriage law. If she had lost the husband, the next son in line would take up the responsibility and marry her and carry on the family. Judah did not do that. He didn't have relations with her again, and it came about at the time that she was giving birth, there were twins in the womb. The twins were born, down verse 29, Perez, and verse 30, Zerah. So out of Judah came these cursed children. They are cursed. They are illegitimate children. They are cursed to a severe degree. Let me show you the curse that is laid out in Deuteronomy 23 on such illegitimate children. Deuteronomy 23, verse 2 says, No one of illegitimate birth shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of his descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. To make people think seriously before they committed the act of incest, the Lord lays down a law that for ten generations you can't come into the assembly of the Lord. You can't come into the temple. I mean, it's, that's like the isolation of a leper. For ten generations. How then is it possible that Messiah can come out of a cursed line. How is it possible? Look at Matthew 1, the genealogy. Turn to Matthew 1. 
This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah. And then in verse 3, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez, the line comes through Perez, comes down to verse 6, David. Don't be surprised, David is the tenth from Judah. At David, the curse is removed. David is the tenth from Judah. So David was free from any curse of Judah's sin and able to enter the congregation of the Lord to reign as king with full privileges. And the curse is removed at the point of David, who is the rightful king and the forefather of the Messiah. The line is purified. David is a legitimate king and the heir to the throne, and so is the later Messiah. And by the way, there's grace in God's purposes, isn't there? That Tamar is in the line. And she's not the only prophet, uh, prostitute in the line. There is another one, Rahab. And then there is a pagan woman by the name of Ruth put into the line. And she is actually the grandmother of David. Grace, grace from God and perfect accuracy mark the mystery of Judah. So the first two paradoxes, we have the incarnation, and then we have the lion of the tribe of Judah, the curse and how it was, it was lifted. But there's a third mystery, and it's the mystery of the home of the Messiah. Where is he from? Jacob this morning read to you out of Matthew 2 to have it in your mind. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 2, one page over. In Matthew chapter 2, it mentions three places that Jesus is from. Bethlehem, Egypt, and Nazareth. Micah 5 says that Jesus the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, one of the prophets. And he was. Hosea 11 says, out of Egypt I called my son. And that's quoted in Matthew 2 as being fulfilled when Jesus came out of Egypt. And then according to Matthew 2, the prophet said that he would be called a Nazarene from Nazareth. We don't have a specific prophecy to that regard, but we don't necessarily have all the prophecies of all the prophets written down. The New Testament writer tells us that it was prophesied he would be from Nazareth. So there is the puzzle. He's supposed to be from Bethlehem. He's supposed to be from Egypt. And he's supposed to be a Nazarene. How can all of that come together in one single person? Well, we read how it happens, don't we? We know how it happens, the Christmas story. He goes to Bethlehem because that's where his family is registered. He goes to Egypt because he's warned in a dream that Herod is going to kill the Messiah while he slaughters all the rest of the two-year-old male children. He comes out of Egypt and heads back, and he's going back into Judea, but he changes his mind because Herod the Great has given his worst son the rule of Judea, Archelaus. And Archelaus was such a madman that on one occasion he slaughtered 3,000 Jews in Jerusalem. He didn't want to go there if his father Herod was a threat in the slaughter of the infants, and he assumed that Archelaus was the same kind of wretched, corrupt character as his father, would continue to be a threat. So rather than go back to Judea, he goes up to Galilee and ends up in Nazareth. <clears throat> Without the story of Jesus, someone in the Old Testament might say, the prophets don't know what they're talking about. Some say he's going to come from Bethlehem. Some say he's going to come from Egypt. Others say he's going to come from Nazareth. How can all of that be true? That's absurd. But you see, it's not. 
We know the story. Born in Bethlehem, escapes to Egypt, ends up in Nazareth. Again, God is orchestrating the circumstances. Even the appointment by Herod the Great of Archelaus results in the Lord ending up in the place the prophet said he would be. How could the prophets of the Old Testament who wrote these things have any idea what they were speaking about? Hosea 11, out of Egypt, I have called my son is such a vague prophecy because it seems to be referring to the nation of Egypt. They would never be able to unscramble that omelet. But when you get to the New Testament, it all becomes clear and it's all fulfilled in Christ. So we have the paradox of the incarnation, the paradox of the Lion of Judah, and the paradox of where he is from. Let's look at a fourth puzzle, the mystery of the right to the throne. Let's turn to Matthew 1, turn back to Matthew 1, and follow the genealogy. So beginning at uh, verse 6, David the king. Then Solomon... was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, and it goes on down through verse 11. And Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Jeconiah, you have, you have these kings from David down to Jeconiah, and then the Babylonian captivity comes. And there were no more kings in Israel. Okay, no more kings. They went into captivity, they came back out of captivity, and there were no more kings. But the kingly line kept going, in verse 12. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel. And it keeps going and going, the father, the father, the father, the father, the father, until we get down to verse 16, Jacob was the father of Joseph. So Joseph is in the line of Jeconiah. That was necessary because the right to rule came through the father. But Jeconiah, or Kaniah as he's called, had a problem. And let's turn one more time now to Jeremiah 22 and see what Jeconiah's problem was. Let's look at verse 24. As I live, declares the Lord, even though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off. I will give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life, yes, into the hand of those whom you dread, even the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. That's the Babylonian captivity. I will hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. But as for the land to which they desire to return, they will not return to it. Is this man Kaniah, or or Jeconiah, a despised, shattered jar? Is he an undesirable vessel? Why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into a land that they have not known? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, For no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. He may have children, but none of them will ever be a ruler. No child in the descendant line of Jeconiah will ever rule in Israel. 
we have a problem. Go back to Matthew 1 and you see that Joseph is in the line of Jeconiah. But that was the line that had the royal right. But notice what verse 16 says back in Matthew chapter 1. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. It doesn't say that Joseph was the father of Jesus, does it? It says Jacob was the father of Joseph, who was the husband of Mary. So from the line of Jeconiah, our Lord received the right to rule, but received no genetic traits. He didn't come from that line. The only humanity he had was derived from Mary, and she had come through another son of David named Nathan. Completely different line. So the curse on Jeconiah is bypassed, while the right to rule is acknowledged. He has the right to rule, but he cannot be a son of Jeconiah. These details in the birth of our Lord are so marvelous as to prove the validity of the scripture So we have the paradox of the incarnation, the lion of the tribe of Judah, where he's from, and the right to the throne. But let's look at one more, the mystery of the stone. The Old Testament prophets talked about the Messiah as a stone. Isaiah 8 and 15, Isaiah 8, 14 and 15 says, a stone to strike and a stone to stumble over. Isaiah 28, a tested cornerstone. Psalm 118, a rejected stone that becomes the chief cornerstone. And Daniel 2, a stone cut out without hands that smashes all other kingdoms. Now, what kind of stone is he? Is he a striking stone, a stumbling stone, a smashing stone, a rejected stone? Or is he a tested cornerstone, a chief cornerstone? These seem contradictory, don't they? Is he a dangerous stone or is he a welcoming stone? Is he a rock of refuge or is he a rock of judgment? Peter pulls all this together for us. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. Here again the New Testament unlocks a seeming paradox of two different very different kinds of stones. <clears throat> First Peter chapter 2 says, verse 4, And coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. So the Messiah is both the rejected stone and he's the precious stone. He's both the stone of judgment and the stone of blessing. But what Peter does in verse 6 is reach back to those stone prophecies in the Old Testament. He says, this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So this precious value then is for you who believe. Now follow this. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumbled because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. The answer to the dilemma of the stone is given in verse 7. 
The precious value is for those who believe. For those who disbelieve, he becomes a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Jesus is both a rock of refuge to those who believe and a rock of offense to those who do not believe. The issue then is belief and unbelief, obedience and disobedience. You will determine what you do with Jesus Christ, whether he will be a cornerstone and you'll be a building block in the house of God built eternally on that cornerstone, or whether he will be a crushing, smashing stone, obliterating obliterating your hope and your life. In a sense, then, the ball is in your court. The truth of who Jesus is is laid before you. Will you believe? Will he be a cornerstone, a foundation stone for you? Or will he be a crushing stone of judgment? To answer we all have to, a question we all have to answer, where are you with Jesus Christ? Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl must answer that question. You know, the first time he came, a star marked his arrival. Next time he comes, all the stars in heaven will fall. First time he came, wise men and shepherds brought him honor. The next time he comes, he'll bring honor to his people. The first time he came, there was no room for him in the inn. The next time he comes, his glory will not be able to be contained by the universe. The first time he came, only a few saw him at his arrival. The next time he comes, everyone will see him. The first time he came as a lamb, the next time he comes as a lion. Would you pray with me, please? Father, again, we are under the weight and the wonder of your truth. Your word is so powerful and so divine. It has a glory all its own. Thank you for showing us Christ this morning for the New Testament that unlocks all the mysteries and reveals all the apparent paradoxes and answers all the riddles and shows us the truth. These things which were impossible for the Old Testament prophets to understand, and yet they are so clear to us. We know that you came the first time as a lamb and you come the next time as a lion. You came the first time as a savior and you come the next time as judge. You came the first time as a servant and you come the next time king. May we see the glory of Christ at this Christmas season, the wonder of how he fulfills all that the Old Testament says. And this unmistakably is to be declared your great king, king of kings, lord of lords, savior and redeemer of his people. May there be no one here who leaves and does not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Thank you for the gift of salvation by faith in Christ. Lord, we pray you would do your work in every heart. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing Silent Night?